0: I'm John, and tonight I want answers about filibusters, NFT. And then later we'll be talking to Bob Odenkirk about his new movie, Nobody. John John wants answers. Give John answers. John wants answers. answers. Give John answers now. Check your calendar. Um, It's April 8th for me and Keith, and later time for you, the audience. Unless they're Benjamin Buttoning it. My guest tonight very is very exciting. I finally got Keith Statenfield on the show. Hi, Keith. Hi, John. It's it's great that we finally managed to get our schedules to mesh up. You were here last month because yeah. you have and, corrections. There's and, some corrections of okay. things you said that turned out not to be true. That yeah. doesn't seem plausible, but go on. I mean, I recall things that were said last month that weren't true by someone, but it wasn't me. It was you. (laughs) Really? Yeah. I don't think I finally. I finally watched the show. We're in what? Season 13 or something? You finally saw the show? I finally saw a show. Correction. Last month, you said that no one watches the show. No one thinks it's great. And then we got this message in. So Lisa Vazquez says... This is by far one of the best shows I watch. Love the chemistry between John and Keith. So people like chemistry? We're far apart. We're far apart physically now, but we have we have virtual chemistry. Does that mean you're my boyfriend now or something? I'm confused. I mean that would be okay. (laughs) No, no. Just I would just have to clear it with some people. No, no, I don't I don't go that way. I'm just saying that apparently we Uh, Well, you are Canadian, so I'm we present a compelling visual experience for the viewers. I, I think so of it more watching. like a train wreck. Like train wrecks are bad, but people watch them. I agree because I've been saying your job in my show is to try, try and derail the show. You're always trying to derail and cause the train wreck. That is John wants answers. I'm, I'm just saying there's a train wreck gonna happen and I'm there when it happens. Uh Uh-huh, second correction. So, good lord. I know, we were talking last month about LGBTQ. LGBTQ, yes. I made the argument that we don't need the L because it's covered by the G. So we don't need lesbian because we have G for gay and lesbians are gay, So, so we don't need it twice. And you said to me, that gay only applies to males. Well, look at this video clip from well-renowned and respected Ellen DeGeneres. Susan, I'm gay. See, see, Key. Apparently gay applies to men and women. Hi. I was unaware that Ellen DeGeneres was the deciding factor here. I think she's a respected authority on the subject. Well, I think she is somewhat respected these days. There's been, I don't know how closely you've been following Ellen's recent travails, but I I would have tried to find a different spokesperson were I the executive producer of the show. Her current travails, notwithstanding, I think in the area of sexuality, she is still an authority on this matter. I I disagree, that (laughs) that means that L doesn't belong in LGBTQ. Oh. I think the L's like being an L in LGBTQ. It makes them feel included. But then for someone like me, well, I'm not a gay man, but I would want my own letter if I was a gay man too. And there's no letter for me in there. G, that's what the G is. No, G's for everybody. No, it's not. No, no, no. That's that. No, no. The, The G is for all the homosexuals. No, that first of all, that would be more the Q. No, right? oh, the Q, Q would in. also be more for all of them because, like, bisexuals are not gay, right? Which is why they have the own bisexual, letter. but they're also queer in that they're retaking the word queer to be a would larger moniker more for the ones. entire community. Wait, you think the bees are part of the Q's? Well, I think in some sense the bees are part of the Q's. Yeah. Are the T's part of the Q's? I think so. When I was growing up, we only had LGB. That's yeah, well, you were in Canada growing up. You might have only had LGB in Canada, for all I know. I'm just saying, next time we have to add a new letter, we should get rid of the L. There's a lot of letters. Like there's there's way more than than just the LGBTQ. But if we like there's another Q and I think there's an A and there's a there might be a third Q for all I remember. Did the third Q talk about how crazy it is to have two Qs already? No, no, I, I mean, thankfully oh. it's not for QAnon. Well, that's our f- topic of corrections. Okay. And now we can we're move gonna, on to- We're going to cut top. that whole thing out because it's not funny at all. Right? <laughs> like we're just going to, I mean, most people don't know it, but we tape about 90 minutes yeah. once yeah. a month. So we did and thirty we, minutes on the corrections. We're probably going to cut it down to like ten. Yeah, yeah. At tops, tops. Our next topic: filibuster. So the filibuster is named after Senator Philip Buster of Kentucky. T. Philip, T. Buster. Philip T. Buster. Yeah. But well, this is not part of the Constitution. The filibuster. No, it's not. No. So what? Describe to me what the what the filibuster is and how it's allowed to exist outside of the constitution almost lots of things exist outside of the constitution of course but big picture it exists outside of the constitution because the constitution says we have a senate Mm -hmm. and then it says the senate sets its own rules for its proceedings and the senate has set a series of rules for how discussions and debates and matters are conducted and the filibuster is a a quirk of the rules of the senate okay in that originally the senate was a smaller body i mean there were 26 senators when the country was founded only 13 states two from the original 13 states two from each of the original 13 states right and when you got 26 people in a room and you're talking about things it's possible to just have a discussion and talk about things and everyone to say their piece And as the Senate gets larger and as the Senate does more business, you know, the Senate clearly on day one adopted rules for how they were going to do things pretty early on. uh, I mean, and those rules are roughly based around what we now call Robert's Rules of Order. Uh, Robert's Rules of Order were a guy named Roberts who kind of wrote down the kind of rules that the House representatives and the Senate and a lot of state legislatures had made up and determined kind of worked over the years. But early on in the Senate, every time the Senate started in session, they were working on the rules of how do we know what procedures we're gonna follow to uh, bring things up to discuss and to make sure that everyone that wants to have their say, has their say, et cetera. Uh, And Aaron Burr, who was vice president- Wasn't uh, he in a play recently? He was in a play. That's why you might've heard of him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, He shot another guy and got away with it. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was the wild west back then, even though they hadn't discovered the wild west yet. It was the wild east. Yeah. Yeah. It was New Jersey. It was the wild Jersey. Uh, Aaron, they had a kind of complicated set of rules and Aaron was trying to simplify them and make them shorter so that people would, you know, remember them and follow them and not argue with them. And he deleted one particular part of the rules that said, after you've had a discussion for a while, someone can say, hey, we should vote on this and then they would have a vote on it. And he kind of crossed that out because he said, we don't need that. There's 26 of us, Uh we're all just gonna have our say and then we'll know it's time to have our vote. And it was that way for quite a few decades before the first smart person looked at the rules and went, well, there's nothing that actually says in the middle of a discussion that someone can say hey, we should vote on this now. And since there was nothing, since there was no rule that said someone could say, hey, we should vote on this now. Well, whoever was talking could just keep talking and not let another person put forward a motion, like, hey, can we vote on this now? And that became called the filibuster because the person on the floor of the Senate could just talk and keep a matter from being voted on. Eventually they would pass out. Well, early on, yes. Although, if you got a group of people and you trade off between them, you can keep something going for a while. Uh, it wasn't used terribly often in the 1800s, but it was used, you know, more than once. Well, how do they figure out who gets to speak next after the last guy passes out? Uh, that's a great question. Presumably, the person at the front of the chambers, in some sense, gets to decide. But the rules would say, you know, if you have two sides in the debate. It usually goes back and forth. Right. Between the the person managing the pro side and the person managing the con side. Get the next guy to say, okay, well, let's put to vote now. But if the first guy doesn't stop talking and if he talks for 18 or 19 hours. Well, eventually he passes out. Well, he does, but in the meantime, other people might leave the chambers. You know, you might get the side that's in favor of it, you know, deciding to go home. Okay. And then once the once the number of people in the chamber changes, you, know, you might be able to get to where there are 25 people in favor of it and 20 people against it. If one person on the losing side keeps talking and five or six people on the pro side leave, then you can say, well, now what do we wanna do? And then you can vote it down 20 to 19. So in some sense you can talk long enough to make things change. You also in some sense could talk long enough To let some negotiations happen in the background, come to a different decision point than you originally were going to if you didn't filibuster. But now they filibuster. But over the years, they have changed the Senate rules multiple Mm -hmm. times. Right. And in the last couple decades, it has not even been necessary for a senator who is filibustering to be on the floor of the Senate speaking. It's generally sufficient to tell the leader of the Senate, hey, I intend to filibuster that bill. Okay. And that alone is enough under the current rules to keep the Senate from being able to move on it, but unless they make a motion to move forward and two thirds of the people present vote for that motion. Two thirds? I thought it was 60. 60, 60, sorry. Yeah. Excuse me, two thirds. Now it's 60. Okay. So someone says, I want to filibuster. And then they yes. hold a vote about, about filibustering. Well, they say, I want to filibuster. And then nothing happens, right? The bill doesn't come to the floor. No one gets to talk about it at all. Someone could go into the chambers, put forward a motion and say, I would like to bring this bill to the floor for a vote right now. And then assuming that that motion is in order in the Senate, uh, they would then do a roll call of all the people present. Mm-hmm. And if they got to 60 votes in favor, then they could start discussing the whether to pass the bill or not. Okay. So the first vote of 60 is not voting for the bill, but it's voting to be able to vote on the bill. Yes, correct. The you bill just... only needs the majority to pass, but right. it needs a supermajority to even be considered to pass. Mm-hmm. And in practice, if you can't get, if you can't get a, if you could get a majority to pass the bill, then you certainly wouldn't get a majority to end the filibuster. Right but it means you have to get 60 votes to pass almost anything because almost any bill can be filibustered. So that means every bill in the Senate has to pass by 60 votes or it will never- Every bill might have to pass by 60 votes. There are a few exceptions. Does the House Uh, of Representatives have a filibuster too or just the Senate? uh, The House of Representatives does not have anything like the filibuster anymore. Very early on, it had something similar to the filibuster, but it went away over 150 years ago. Now, the filibuster has been receiving a lot of news lately. It has, yeah. What's happening for it to receive so much attention? Well, it's gotten a lot of attention for the last 10 years, probably even before that, because you know, the number of filibusters in the Senate each year has just grown astronomically compared to the number that were done 150, 100 years ago. So that a lot of popular legislation just never even gets a vote on the floor of the Senate if it passes the House or if a Senate committee forwards it because some nameless senator, because senators don't even have to to give their name out when they're filibustering. Any senator can just say, well, I intend to filibuster this bill, and then it never really gets any discussion until it gets a supermajority vote in favor of ending the filibuster. Someone's got to know who filibustered. Yes, usually the majority leader who controls what bills come to the floor knows. There's no requirement that it be done publicly in the Senate chambers or that anyone's name go in the record. But recently there's been a lot of talk about it because they're thinking. Well, in particular recently, the Democrats have a very, very slim majority in the Senate. I mean, the Senate is divided 50-50 and Vice President Harris breaks ties in the Senate. So for any vote that gets 50 votes in favor, 50 against, Vice President could vote in favor of it and could pass, but 50 is nowhere near 60. And so the guess is that an awful lot of legislation is not going to get a vote in the Senate without some way of reforming the filibuster or eliminating the filibuster. And a lot of people think we shouldn't have a Senate that just doesn't pass any legislation because the country has real issues and real problems that the federal government needs to address. And doing nothing is not going to address most of those. So to change the Senate rules, does that just take a simple majority? Takes a majority of the people in the Senate can change the rules of the Senate. They generally have a vote on the first day of each session. Hey let's adopt the rules for this session of Congress, but they can do it later. Uh, Also, even if the filibuster is a rule, they can ignore the rule with a majority vote. Wait, what do you mean? We can of the filibuster anytime? Well, they could just ignore a filibuster on a bill. Well, then what? Suppose a a Senator says, I intend to filibuster this bill. And a majority of people show up on the floor of the Senate and they vote 51 in favor of bringing the bill forward. And then that senator is going to say, I have I have been filibustering that bill, so the Senate rules say it can't come forward. Mm-hmm. And then the parliamentarian will say, that guy's right. The Senate rules say you need a three-fifths, you need a supermajority to bring this bill forward. Uh-huh. And then someone can say, I challenge the decision of the parliamentarian. And then they can have a discussion on the decision of the parliamentarian. And then by majority vote, they can decide the parliamentarian is wrong. Either they're not. It, well, as it turns out, the Senate has hired the parliamentarian, but if the Senate thinks the parliamentarian is wrong, the Senate can vote that the parliamentarian is wrong. So now I'm confused why there is a filibuster, because according to what you just described to me, there is no filibuster. Um, it is very rare that it has gone that far. That has been called the the, atomic, nuclear, uh, the nuclear option. Yeah. Uh, let's just ignore the filibuster. Um, there have been pieces of legislation that the Senate has decided to pass over. the. I mean, in some sense, right, budget reconciliation doesn't get filibustered because they decided it doesn't get filibustered, and they could decide that on other legislation when they want it. So we've heard of the news, apparently there's one guy stopping filibuster reform, this Democrat named Joe Manchin. He is a fairly conservative Democrat, and he either truly believes the filibuster is good for the country, or he cynically believes that allowing the filibuster to exist gives him more power as a Democrat, or Lord does what. Uh, the reason Senator why... Cinnamon from Arizona is also against filibuster re- reform. Okay. And there are other senators that have not come out publicly but have kind of said that they like the filibuster the way it is. So I've heard about the thing called budget reconciliation. Yeah. Apparently is somehow filibuster proof. How is that? Uh, it's filibuster proof because back in the 70s, uh, the budget got filibustered a couple times. And it was viewed as unseemly for <laughs> July 1st to roll around and for the country to suddenly be unable to spend any money or pay the people in the army or send out social security checks. And they thought we really ought to be able to pass a budget every year. And so they wrote a rule that said the budget passes with 51 votes and the budget cannot be filibustered, a motion, you know. Okay. They also don't allow filibusters on certain nominations. Well, I heard in the, in the last 10 years, they stopped filibustering on federal judges and cabinet positions. Um, and then under the administration, they stopped filibustering on Supreme Court nominations. I think that's largely correct. I'm not sure if they stopped filibustering on Supreme Court nominations. They just decided not to do it. They probably stopped it on Supreme Court nominations because otherwise someone would have filibustered frat boy, Kavanaugh. All right. Our next topic is NFT. What does NFT stand for? Uh, it's a non-fungible token. Sounds like a mushroom. Uh, it'd be a non-fungus token. Ah, um, what is this NFT, this non-fungible token? A non-fungible token is basically a, it's a math thing that you can't create on your own, that whose uniqueness is guaranteed by the magic of the blockchain. I've been hearing about things that have NFTs that are worth $69 million. What is this all about? Uh, Someone invented non-fungible tokens. And then someone created a non-fungible token and they put it in the ethereum blockchain and then someone else agreed to transfer 69 million dollars in ethereum tokens to the person that created the non-fungible token and the person that created the non-fungible token passed ownership of the private keys which indicate this is the the person that possesses this possesses this non-fungible token I don't think that means they're worth $69 million. I just think that means someone spent $69 million and some numbers changed hands. Can you figure out why someone with $69 million would decide to spend it on a private key to something? Um, I think some people just have more money than they know what to do with. More money than cents? Yeah, sure, yeah, more money than a lot of cents. I mean, I... I am personally of the opinion that an odd of uh, Bitcoin's value in particular is based around the fact that it makes it easier to evade various rules and regulations and therefore encourages fraud and- I've been hearing that. And NFTs are usually associated these days with pieces of digital art. That's generally correct because it, at the core of it, NFT is an entry in a blockchain that says this thing that's owned. And conceptually, that's really no different than a URL that points to a thing somewhere on a server. But the URLs in practice point to digital things. And so NFTs in practice point to digital things. So what would it mean to own this digital art? That's a great question. It means that you the are the owner the recognized owner from the perspective of one particular blockchain of a thing that points to one place on a server. But I don't really own the thing. For example, do I don't not own the thing. intellectual property. I can't copy the digital thing and sell it. Well, you probably can't. I mean, that, it depends on the person that sold it to you. If the person that sold it to you also sold you the entirety of the intellectual property, then in some sense you own the intellectual property and you own the non-fungible token. But those have to be two separate transactions because the NFT doesn't transfer the intellectual property unless the intellectual property was put into the NFT. So I have problems understanding what then it means to own this digital work. Since anyone else can see it, the author can make many prints. Well, I mean, the Mona Lisa is a picture. It's in the Louvre in Paris. It's owned by the Louvre in Paris. Mm -hmm. You can buy a print of the Mona Lisa in the gift shop in Paris at the Louvre. Mm -hmm. And the print you buy can be, from all perspectives, equally as good as the one that's sitting down in the Louvre. (laughs) But the one that's sitting down in the Louvre, in theory, was painted by da Vinci sure and the one you have wasn't and the one at the louvre is worth a lot more money than yours but in the case of digital they are, they're identical they're just um, they are but imagine i'm a digital artist and i have made some picture that is particularly nice or particularly val- you know particularly interesting in some fashion i can put that exact set of bits On a server, I can create one token, which points to that thing on the server, and I can sell you that token. Now, I as an artist have sold you that, and you are the only person that can say, I own the thing that NFT points to. Everyone else might be able to see it, but they can't say they own it. But there's no other benefit from saying I own it that's correct one paid 69 million dollars to say they own it but it's available to everyone else equally and the there are prints just as good as the mona lisa that other people own Mm -hmm. but the one in the louvre is worth a lot of money and other people's are not i just don't think i'll be able to wrap my head around the value Uh, i think it's a weird concept um i mean it some artists have said, digital artists really have no way of selling our digital artwork. Right. Because no one can tell whose no one's copy is any different than anyone else's copy. NFTs are a way for a digital artist to make a piece of artwork which is different from other people's piece of artwork, even <laughs> though the bits are identical. But is it which really? Is, is it really? <laughs> uh, Got to ask why the... Painting in the Louvre is worth millions of dollars, and an exact copy of it is not. Because those actually are different. Once it's printed on paper and doesn't, you know, have texture and DNA of that guy who coughed on it when he painted it. Well, before we finish up, I have an update for Keith and John. Get it on. Okay. What's up? So much an update as, as a question. A wrinkle. It's a wrinkle. As all our viewers know, you yeah. and I are running for governor in 2022. To see you get- California votes, votes. Very clear. Governor of California. Yes. Governor of California. I don't want to say I'm running for governor of another state, because that would be a crime. But there has been a movement this year to recall the current governor, Newsom. Yeah. Now, if that goes through, there'll be an election, I guess, in 2021 for a new governor. Fall of 2021, yeah. Now, my question yeah. is, does that new governor serve for four years or for one year, the remainder of Newsom's term? I believe that person serves for the remainder of the current term because the constitution says, you know, gubernatorial elections shall be every four years. Mm -hmm. And they say it shall be, you know, offset from presidential election years. And they can't ensure that if a recall could cause someone to be elected governor. So what should we do about our challenge? Now, should we run in 2021 or should we run in 2022? Well, I'm of the opinion that recall elections are a terrible idea and they're very poorly implemented. And Mm -hmm. so I have no intention of making the circus that is going to be the recall election even more circus-like. Okay. I remember last time, like, there was Gary Coleman and some adult actresses in the running for governor. Yeah, hundreds and hundreds of people's names in the ballot. There was hundreds? I don't know. There were lots. Why do people tend to run in these these elections, as opposed to the one every four years? Because the requirements for getting onto the ballot are much simpler in a recall election. In the ordinary election, there are the primaries, and then the top two winners in the primary advance to the gubernatorial election in the fall. But in a recall election, there are no primaries, and the signature requirement necessary to get your name into the recall election is much lower than the signature requirement to get your name into a primary. Neither you nor I, in any possible situation, are going to win the primary for the 2022 oh, yeah. gubernatorial election. Yes. Not so is not going to happen. Right. So we were only going to be running in the primary. Yes. Now, uh, but even so, the requirements in the primary are more extensive. The requirements to get onto the standard gubernatorial primary are a much higher hurdle than to get to the recall. And the odds of winning are easier in a recall election than in a standard election because. There's no requirement that you get a majority of the vote to be elected governor. You merely have to get one more vote than the next closest person. And that encourages more people to run. So we're going to do it the hard way. We're going to go through the primaries. We're not going to do it the easy way. Let's put it that way. Yes. Can I plug my website? Sure. Anyone but John for (laughs) governor.com. Anyone for John... For governor.com. Okay, so check that website out. Uh, we're out of time. I'm sorry to Bob Odenkirk. We, will, we have uh, time to talk to him about his new nobody. He um, was great in the green room. We had like a 45 minute talk while you were setting up your green screen. All right.